You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed. We recorded on September 27th, and we talked all about the September FOMC meeting, Evergrande, and what you can expect out of Chinese bonds, as well as the German election. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with our chief investment strategist for fixed income, Dustin Reed. Dustin, uh, the last podcast, we discussed the upcoming FOMC meeting in September. Uh, that's now behind us. Uh, what did you What did you learn during that meeting? Anything surprising? And maybe you can provide a summary for uh, the context of that meeting. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me back to the podcast. Uh, the FOMC meeting was uh, busy with a lot of, I think, interesting, interesting takeaways. Um, I think there was a, a very big focus on the dots going in. And I think we Spent a fair bit of time on on the previous podcast you know, talking about the risks uh, around uh, the dots, which which are just a, a very plain way of saying what what the FOMC members participants really, as opposed to voters, uh, were expecting maybe going forward. Um, like June, which was a, which ended up having a pretty hawkish surprise around the dots. Uh, I would say we probably got the same uh, for September. Um, the, the 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 most important part I think was the 2022 median, and so to get a little bit micro for a second, there's 18 uh, participants uh, putting in dots for or estimates for where Fed funds should be for 22, 23, and 24, and there was a nine nine split on the 18 uh, participants for 22. So most people, maybe not everybody, but most people view that as basically okay. The median dot is looking now for a 25 basis point hike in 2022. And if you use those metrics, then when you go through the end of 2024, uh, the median dot projects 175 basis points worth of hikes, including that one I just discussed for 2022. Uh, and I would say that's probably a little bit more hawkish, a little bit higher than expected in terms of where the market was uh, going in. I think maybe most were looking for 125 or 150 in total hikes uh, by the end of 24, we got 175. So a little bit of a upside surprise, which in terms of these things is because they're so clustered generally is actually somewhat, somewhat, uh, somewhat surprising in terms of the, the magnitude. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, there are a few other interesting takeaways too. First of all, we got the accounting uh, upside on core PCE for this current calendar year. Which was really just obvious, taking into account the the upside in inflation, which we talked about a lot here, sure. um, and we saw a bit of an uptick for 2022 and 2023, uh, both now above two percent for uh, well above two percent for core PCE, you know, which I think is interesting because we've seen and heard Powell, Chairman Powell, essentially say that um, at least I think from his vantage point as chair of the committee, as opposed to his own personal view, but as chair of the committee, that they have uh, met the the uh, the uh, the objective for sustainable forward progress with respect to inflation, the inflation part of the mandate. So that is interesting because you can kind of backfill and say, okay, well, if they first of all have achieved that kind of in real time with the high levels of inflation, okay, that's one thing. And then if you kind of take a, a bit of a 
a median view in terms of uh, not necessarily outcome-based forward guidance, but outlook-based forward guidance. And they're now expecting kind of 2.2 or 2.3 in core PCE. That seems to be quote unquote enough uh, for the Fed. Although again, the Fed's new framework um, of average inflation targeting is really about achieving the inflation target and, and the labor market target, as opposed to estimating that it will get there in the future. But right. still, I think it's it's quite interesting that even just a slight tick or two or three above 2% seems to not be getting the Fed off track is probably a better way to look at it. And that, you know, I kind of thought it would be two and a half or more. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's so I think it's just interesting just in terms of where the uh, the pivot point is on that. So I mean, more to come on that in calendar 22, as we've talked about before. But um Anyway, I think that's quite interesting. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting from Powell is, and he never does this, but during the press conference, kind of stepped uh, a bit uh, outside of himself for a second and said, uh, and basically talked his own view as opposed to his role as chair of the committee and, and talking as maybe the median person on the Fed. Uh, okay. But he basically he basically said that for him, in his own view, that uh, the, the labor market had achieved, uh, the definition of sustainable forward progress, at least in terms of tapering. Hmm. And, uh, he rarely steps outside of his role as chair and speaks on his own view, particularly at the press conference for the FOMC meetings. So I think that was very interesting. Obviously that, that says something in terms of, I guess he feels very confident about that. And, also help the market to solidify that November is looking very likely now for the announcement for tapering. Right. The way the Fed dates work around uh, announcing uh, the the uh, the buybacks for the the quantitative easing program, uh, I believe the date is November fifteenth for that. So the next FOMC meeting is uh, well, it's always two days, but it'll be November second, November third, November third. The Wednesday is the announcement day. So in theory, the Fed could start tapering uh, as uh, early as uh, as the 15th of November. Uh, it may not even wait till December 1st, but it looks like that's that's what's happening unless we get something very odd, you know, happening from left field. But that that's kind of the, the mechanics of what happened in terms of markets. I was a little surprised, to be fair. Um, I, I would have expected this is this is always the trouble with macro. You get the call right, uh, <laughs> and then mark and then markets don't behave as you think they would expect, which is which makes macro infinitely challenging. Um, so we got the call effectively right, and then the curve didn't really flatten uh, as much as I thought, um, which was a, l- a little bit disappointing. Although we definitely got the move in twos and fives uh, quite a bit, you know, quite a bit higher. Um, and, and so, and I think that for what it's worth, I think that view uh, is still good now today, as we, as we record this podcast, I still like five year uh, treasury yields uh, quite a bit higher from where they are now. It's probably my, my favorite view within the, within the fixed income space, particularly in North America anyway, um, because I think that there's uh, a, quite a bit of upside there based on uh, oil and uh, you know, the, the market needs to recalibrate in terms of the fed dots and the technicals are also looking very bullish from a yield a yield perspective, bearish from a price perspective. Um, so, and there's a number of other things which we could get into. And, and I would say our, our most of our portfolios, not all, but most of our portfolios are are, are short five year uh, five years as as part of the overall the overall mix. So it, it definitely is part of the uh, 
part of the view. But that's uh, that was kind of an interesting thing. And we didn't get a big dollar rally either. And again, I I, I would have expected that. Um, sure. And real yields have been ticking lower, um, roughly from uh, you know, minus 100 basis points on the 10-year real yield space from early last week to around 85, 86 or so, just coming into the podcast here, which is not a massive move, but uh, you know, 14 or 15 basis points starting at 100 is not is not small. We really haven't seen a big move in the dollar higher, which is causing me to kind of question a little bit the relationship between real yields and the dollar. Uh, maybe the dollar really is taking its cues from the equity market and not and not real yields here. So it might need to be a little bit of a rethink of that. So so it, it's a very interesting Fed meeting from that perspective. Kind of got the call the macro uh, call right, so to speak, the mechanics of it right, but the market didn't necessarily trade it exactly as uh, one would have expected. Although we did see again the short the short end come up a fair bit, and we've seen some good follow through uh, to end last week and to start this week as well, which you know would would generally uh, you would expect from a textbook perspective. Right. Uh, maybe just a few follow ups on uh, a couple of the topics that you touched there. Uh, maybe we'll stick on the market move. Uh, any sure. ideas on what's driving the market to not? react the way that you, that you would have expected? Is there another macro um, piece to it or is it is it a little bit unknown at this point? I think there's a lot going on. Uh, and I could I could do a laundry list and throw everything at the wall, but you know I, I don't I don't love to do that. But I do think that I think the 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 dollar, the, the broad dollar um, reaction function is really a function of equities at this point. And um, you know basically Equities higher, dollar sells off. Equities lower, a dollar's bid. In a, in a very very you know simplistic uh, uh, you know framework. And um, yeah, it seems to be you know market themes kind of wax and wane over time, as you know I love to say. And different themes kind of come in and out, and there are different drivers that are driving markets, you know, at all times. And I think that that's kind of the short term tactical. Uh, on the dollar side, why you know what what might be happening just in terms of the you know the big the big dollar view. I mean, there's a lot of other things going on. The China story is obviously very important. Right. Um, there's a very interesting and frankly very challenging energy story happening in the UK and Europe yeah. uh, that that has the potentially big macro effects. We've got oil uh, at three year highs on the current contract uh, and, and probably heading higher. Um, there's a ton of uh, news coming on the fiscal side um, in the U.S., whether that's debt ceiling or potential government shutdown or the infrastructure bill or the you know, kind of the big uh, Act Two uh, spending bill, um, which are all somewhat coming together in what I was calling in our call team call this morning an imperfect storm because it's 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 all it's all, it's all kind of falling all over each other. Um, you know, and there's obviously lots of other things going on in terms of, you know, are we past peak growth, inflation, in terms of that, you know, the, that dynamic. Um, I heard a very interesting uh, 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 rationale last week around market positioning um, for, uh, for treasuries uh, with respect to corporate pensions. Uh, and so that's a, that's a flow argument. So there's a lot of things kind of happening at the same time. And okay. it's very tough to kind of look through it all. Uh, obviously, that is... Uh, you know, our job, my job to try and sure. step back and say, okay, what, you know, what does it all, what does it all mean? Um, I would say this is uh, one of the more challenging points in the year, I think year to date um, in terms of the outlook, particularly for the long end of the treasury curve. 
Um, I can make good cases for higher or lower um, at this point. I'm more confident around the short end, twos and fives, uh, continuing to grind higher in the in the next few weeks and months. Um, but the long end is the long end. The tens and thirties are 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 challenging. But uh, but yeah, back to your question. I think um, you know the, the the dollar story and uh, and and why and why markets didn't necessarily perform quite what was going on is probably a function of flows that is not really completely understood by the majority in the market because there were probably large flows that uh, only were known by a handful, maybe even one, but a handful of dealers. Um, that were that were causing uh, that were causing I would say uh, yields to be suppressed uh, artificially for a long period of time in I would say maybe two or three weeks before the Fed meeting and just before and just before the Fed meeting that program may have run off and kind of you know uncorked the bottle so to speak and uh, allowed yields to pop higher when uh, when really the the fundamentals uh, of the Fed meeting should have meant that at, at least a flattener. Uh, whether it's a bull flattener or bear flattener is different, kind of a different exercise. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of what I think is going on. That's a, that's a lot of information, but uh, you know, that's what we kind of do when uh, a fixed income to you. It's perfect. Uh, it, it gives me lots of confidence that we'll have uh, lots to talk about in future that's right. podcasts. So that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, I did want to go back just uh, one last uh, point oh, you sure. mentioned. Uh, you talked about uh, average inflation uh, or mm-hmm. the, the guidance coming in at 2.2 or 2.3. Yeah. Um, you know, average inflation targeting is something that the Fed has talked about, but they haven't given a lot of definition to. Do you have right. any better sense on what they mean, how how much inflation they'll let run hot, what the time frame is on what average, what where they're averaging over, anything like that come out of this meeting? It's tough because the Fed's trying to keep as much, uh, keep these events mutually exclusive. And these events are tapering and hiking. And it's doing uh, at least at least uh, Chairman Powell is really trying to draw a line, have a definition between you know A and B, and it's challenging for him. I don't envy his position because he's got more and more people, presumably the the uh, district Fed presidents who are traditionally more hawkish than DC governors, uh, you know, looking for hikes in 22, and that will muddy the. You know the time in theory between um, you know the end you know the end of tapering and the beginning of and the beginning of 22. Um, what I think um, what I think the Fed is uh, trying trying to say uh, for Powell to essentially say that they've met the definition on the prices side on the inflation side essentially says that I would say the majority um, as the, as the Fed would say many or most. In their kind of minutes language, uh, feel that they've met the definition of of sustainable forward progress, at least for the tapering side. I think the the liftoff side is still is still a bit TBD. Um, and so, I, I, they, to your point, and I think it's 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 a great question. They they really haven't released or said what it's going to be. I don't know if that epiphany moment is ever going to happen. I don't know if they're ever going to release a white paper and say this is it. Because I don't think I think the Fed, you know, every central bank loves to have optionality, and obviously, if you kind of stake it out like that, um, it gives you less optionality. Because if you don't do what you said you're going to do, someone's going to call you out on it. So right. maybe it, maybe it's not, it's not known. And in reality, it's probably a range anyway. It's probably not a point estimate. So it's probably not two and a half percent. It's probably a range, you know, around two and a half percent, whatever that is. 
it's probably not two and a half percent for four quarters. It's probably around two and a half percent for somewhere between three and six quarters. And that gives you a little bit of kind of optionality, flexibility around, you know, other other tangential things or other, you know, more uh, qualitative things that might be happening, like financial conditions um, that the Fed obviously pays a lot of attention to that, you know, if financial conditions are very loose, then okay, we'll let it go for a bit. Uh, financial conditions are very tight and maybe we, maybe we wouldn't, um, you know, so that, that sort of thing. So uh, they haven't been specific. I'm not sure the forecasts in the court, in the, um, in this, in the, uh, statement of economic projections really give us a lot more clarity with respect to how they're using that new inflation framework for lifting off. I think for, for the, uh, for the tapering story, I think it, I think it helps a little bit. And clearly the one thing I, I probably should have mentioned before, the, another thing that Powell did say, uh, somewhat surprisingly early in the press conference was that, uh, he expected the tapering to be done by mid 2022, which again was another kind of hawkish versus where I think the market was um, a surprise. So, I, which again was surprising why the the price the price action thereafter didn't necessarily uh, have more of a steepener and more of a, the U.S. dollar uh, bid against other other currencies. Right. Well, let's let's leave behind the FOMC meeting, but that was excellent uh, comments. Uh, good perspective. Uh, one of the um, things that you mentioned in the long list of uh, things that were happening in markets was uh, China. Uh, and certainly uh, recently, there's been a lot of uh, press around Evergrande uh, right. and uh, the debt there uh, and a possible contingent moment. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective both on China as a whole and then uh, Evergrande and, and if you do think that there's a possible Lehman style uh, moment coming or if that's uh, all overblown. So I would say that uh, clearly it's it's a significant issue. Uh, markets, at least last week and the week before, were trading it as a potentially significant issue, both you know the the bonds uh, and I, and I'll speak to the bond side because uh, you sure. know I'm not I'm not I'm not on the equity side but on the bond side it was you know significant um, the property sector trading you know in periphery is significantly uh, the high yield sector of which in China which the the property market at least used to make up a, a vast majority of of, of that issuance uh, right. and obviously it was having an impact on Chinese equities from just a macro index perspective as well and started to kind of morph over to to this side of the pond. Uh, as well. I mean, I would say uh, our team, broadly speaking, uh, while having good discussions around it, probably thinks it's not necessarily a Lehman moment. Um, uh, although I would say some people on our team might might think it's a little bit more serious than others. I, I'm probably a little bit more in the uh, the former. I don't think it's I don't think it's a Lehman moment. Uh, I, the reason I think it's probably not, um, at least right now, is because it's a different system there in terms of how the, you know, the economy is run uh, right. and how the central bank runs. And if the central bank wanted to PBOC, people's bank of China, the central bank wanted to mop this up and clear it up, it, it could do it uh, relatively easily, at least on a relative basis, a lot easier than what the fed could do in 2008 when Lehman was teetering or just, you know, teetered over. Right. Uh, so kind of on a, I'm looking at it from that perspective and everyone, you know, there's a lot of clickbait going on in, uh, on news media, you know, Lehman moment, Lehman moment. 
and, totally. and maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but I, the, me- the mechanics of, you know, what, what can you do in terms of size and speed, I think is quite a bit different as we sit here in 21 versus 08. And, and maybe that, maybe that viewpoint is wrong, but I feel that, um, at least the bank could PBOC could now will it right. And, um, you know, I think our team's view, broadly speaking, is that um, Evergrande probably is going to be made and have an example made of it. Is is to be fair, I think the uh, the offshore bonds are are very much at risk. Um, I think that um, uh, the 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 government probably wants to ensure that people that have put money down for new homes and apartments are made whole and or see those dwellings get built, right. uh, and then retail investors are generally made whole and institutional investors are going to be kind of last on the pecking order here in terms of how any quote unquote engineered default you know, may or may not happen. But that's what I think the end goal is. I also think that the Chinese government and the PBOC do not want this to be a contagion event throughout the uh, economy. I mean, clearly there is a push towards popping the real estate bubble and getting some of the froth out of um, uh, what what I think the president uh, sees as an exceptionally leveraged market. And I would say a lot of people globally see the Chinese property market is one of the big macro uh, overly leveraged markets in the world. Um, sure. But I think that that bubble has to be let out very carefully because China's GDP is uh, heavily tied to the property sector. And it could be um, it could be really devastating for the Chinese economy. And obviously, uh, you know, the government does not does not want to engineer that type of uh, massive, uh, massive slowdown as well. So it's a fine it's a fine line in terms of uh, moral hazard and slowing things down while trying to uh, invoke, I think, you know, President Xi's, um, you know, overarching view of uh, the, you know, common, common good or common people uh, that he's really had uh, really been pushing the last, uh, I would say six months or so. So I think that's kind of, I think that's what's happening uh, there. Um, You know, from a portfolio perspective, We've looked at a few names um, on on the property side, looking for the right opportunity to get in. I would say it's very much toe dipping, of uh, like small toe dipping at this point, uh, right. pretty pretty minimal. Um, there will probably be a point in time where some of these uh, bonds will look exceptionally attractive, um, but I think from our our team's perspective, we want to see. Uh, the air come out of the tire, so to speak, a little bit more here, um, okay. and think and think there's uh, more to go. I would call it a managed default um, uh, at, at this point. That's going to be uh, a bit of a grind. We've seen the, the uh, we've seen the central bank inject a lot of liquidity into uh, into the, the market via seven and fourteen day repos over the last week and a half or so. Now, some of that is because of quarter end, month end, and your ahead of the uh, week-long holidays starting October 1st. So traditionally, the bank would inject additional money into the system anyway. Uh, but it started a bit earlier and it started a bit more in size, uh, which seemed to suggest that it was giving banks a little bit more you know, cushion and liquidity. And there's been some talk that some of the domestic banks might be uh, concerned about a liquidity squeeze in the swaps market. Um, so uh, the PBOC, the central bank, has been injecting a decent amount of liquidity, call it 
uh, around a hundred billion a day uh, uh, gross uh, with redemptions. Sometimes it's it's less, uh, sometimes it's more, but um, uh, generally around a hundred billion a day for the last uh, number of days. And I think that will continue, you know, from the day of you know our recording here, right through to uh, the beginning of the uh, of the week long holiday, and then frankly probably beyond if the Evergrande story continues to be kind of a slow uh, a slow grind here. And not kind of a, a one-off uh, uh, default event, which it it probably won't be at least at least for a while. So uh, I think we're going to be living with it. But as these thing, these things go, when when there's themes, um, kind of especially downside risk themes, um, it's a big deal for a while, and then the market uh, kind of gets used to it and trades and trades off of it. I think the longer term story, not not necessarily for here and today, is. Uh, what does this mean for the Chinese property market and China GDP? And what does that mean for the global economy? That is a, that is a massive question. Um, and, uh, you know, I think something that people are starting to dig into um, a lot uh, over, you know, now over, and what does it, what does that mean for 19, you know, for 2022, 2023? And uh, uh, I think that's kind of the longer term question. Um, you know, where, where do, where does the government really see the optimum or appropriate level for, for real estate in China? And how do you get from A to B? And, you know, what are the impacts on global markets? And that, that's a massive question, but I think uh, one to, uh, you know, start thinking about and, and keep in mind for the next, uh, probably for the next, uh, I would say, six to 12 months. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing your evolving views on that. Um, and maybe to, to finish things off, the Germans uh, just finished up an election. Uh, I'd love your take on uh, the the new uh, government, uh, the new chancellor, and uh, what that may mean for uh, Europe and markets as a whole. So, yeah, it's a good question. It's um, so Germany's had this long anticipated election on Sunday, the 26th. Um, and it was it was close going in and it's close coming out uh, very uh very close results. Uh, it looks like the uh, SPD, uh, which I view as a, a center-left uh, party, uh, has the most amount of uh, popular vote, and it looks like seats in the in the lower house, and uh, and that that is not unexpected. And uh, the Greens um, did relatively well, uh, although it looks like they're off about ten percentage points from their peak uh, in May in terms of the overall percentage of population uh, vote that they got. Uh, and the FDP, which is uh, called, uh, which is basically like the liberal, the liberal party, uh, although not, not the same as what we would consider the liberal party here in Canada. It's actually a, a center right party uh, in Germany, pretty uh, business friendly. Um, also did relatively well. Those three parties I just mentioned uh, were the ones that were able to improve on their overall vote count for, this election versus the previous election. And so right. they are essentially making the case or there's the case to be made that they should be allowed to try and form the next government uh, via coalition process uh, because uh, the other parties have uh, fallen away quite a bit, particularly uh, Merkel's uh, CSU, CDU, uh, you know, co coalition. Um, so it does look like Merkel, uh, regardless, really, um, is going to be leaving after about 15 years at the helm. And uh, it's probably going to take a little bit of time here. It, it could take a few weeks. It could take a few months for this coalition to come together. I've seen a lot of stories last night and today around uh, 
Christmas even until uh, oh, really? our coalition actually comes together. So it could be it could be a number of months. Uh, the Greens, in my opinion, are, and to a slightly lesser extent, the FDP, the, the Liberal Party, are really the uh, king and queen makers uh, here uh, for the next government, whatever, whoever they want to associate with, whether it's the SDP or the CSU, CDU, uh, they can basically make it happen. Uh, I suspect the Greens and the FDP will probably get their own act together uh, bilaterally uh, before moving forward. But I think it will be a change at the top with the SPD kind of running the show. On the margin, that probably means a little bit looser fiscal uh, environment in Germany, although it's always relative. Um, sure. and, and clearly there's going to be, and there already is obviously globally, a, a big shift towards uh, green and ESG uh, you know, uh, mandates, uh, investments, uh, actions, many, many things, right? And uh, the Greens are obviously going to push that. I would also say the Greens in Germany are again not quite like the greens that we would uh you know the green party here in canada a little bit more uh i guess what most people would consider a little bit more centrist uh a green party um so i don't uh, while they want to spend to be sure i don't think they want to spend uh with with monster deficits you know unending uh so it's a little so it's a little bit of a different kind of uh uh, mantra there. So I, I do they think that after all, so I, yeah, I think that, I think there, you know, kind of the black, the black zero, you know, still, still plays a role as, as they say in Germany. So sure. I think, um, I think that there will be a, a more left-leaning coalition. That's clearly more green when that, that gets put together eventually, again, whether that's a few weeks or a few months, it's still kind of TBD. It probably means a little bit more spending. We'll have to see if it actually moves the needle though, and actually, uh, Im, you know, impacts, um, impacts policy. I don't know if it's going to be enough to actually move how quickly the ECB can or can't do anything. The, I will say the market reaction, uh, frankly, not unlike the market reaction on Canadian assets after the Canadian election has been, uh, I would say, minimal. And that would be probably an overstatement um, uh, after the uh, after the German meeting, uh, sorry, after the German election with uh, you know, minimal minimal wobbliness in, uh, in the euro as well as the, uh, the German curve. So, um, and that could be a function, a little bit of everyone kind of understands that there needs to be a few weeks or months before the coalition comes together officially. Uh, it could also be that this is a, uh, not much to see here. Let's move on to all these other, um, you know, themes that are, that are currently interesting and driving. So, but that's, that's kind of what's happening in Germany. And, uh, I, I think it's clearly important, um, particularly from a domestic fiscal perspective. Uh, you know, there could be some interesting trades on a relative basis in trade Europe, you know, the Bund curve versus the French curve. Versus the BTP curve in um, in Italy. I mean, that's where things could get a little bit more interesting. But from a currency perspective, um, I don't think it's going to knock the ECB off a lot and change the uh, the um, you know the uh, the path of monetary policy materially either way. So that uh, that rate divergence story, which is going to be a big theme between the Fed and the ECB as well as other central banks, uh, you know, for the next year, I think are, is still very much intact. Dustin, uh, that's excellent. We'll stop it there. Thanks so much for your insights and time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. 
content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.